This is an ABC podcast. And so it is that today the minefield finally re-enters the world. Born anew from the last five weeks of, well, whatever that was. Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Hi, Scott. Hey, Walid. Is it wrong? I hope it's not. Mm. I mean, as you were saying that, I thought, yes, we re-enter the world with a thud. And for some reason... <laughs> is, that, is that how you want to re-enter? The image that immediately came to mind is, is it season three or season four of the US version of The Office? It's my kid's favourite show, so I've lost track the number of times we've repeated it. Yeah. Um, but there's this ridiculous cold open when Michael Scott and Dwight Schrute are practicing for the imminent arrival of Michael Scott's ex-partner's baby, which has no relation whatsoever to Michael Scott himself. And they're practicing with a watermelon, which Dwight Schrute greases for the sake of realism. And uh, yes, it's a, actually an uncommonly funny <laughs> cold open whereby a watermelon enters the world with a thud. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so here we are. That's where you took my introduction? <laughs> you know, here we are. Yeah, I suppose, we, well, one way or another, we are here, Scott. That is correct. <laughs> well observed. It, it's always a tricky show to do, the first one after the Ramadan series, because there's this, do we reflect on, like, what the big thing is that's happened while we've been away on our retreat? Hmm. Or is it just something of this week? And it was a sort of a strange one for us to do. And I have to admit, the show we've chosen to do today is, I thought, the very least likely one that we would do mm. for a couple of reasons. One, it takes as its point of departure Anzac Day. Mm. So in a way, it's a kind of, I don't know, it's not quite an anniversary show, is it? But you know what I mean? It's mm. it's connected to the calendar rather than to events that might have emerged in an unpredictable way. Yeah. Anzac Day is over. So no matter when you're listening to this, whether it's a podcast or on the radio, there is a sense of, well, that, that's already been and gone. You're not in the thick of it, which is in some ways when Anzac Day, I mean, that, well, it is when Anzac Day is most reflected upon. And also we've done shows in the past on Anzac Day mm. and you wonder whether or not there's anything really more that you would do with it. And yet, I, I don't know, as we sort of discussed this, I thought there's actually, a, there's this very rich terrain yeah. that's not really about Anzac Day per se, but it is about, well, I guess the kind of thing that Anzac Day wants to commemorate, the nature of war mm. and the role that it plays within, what would you call it, the moral universe, its position amongst the moral constellations. Nice. The virtues that gather around it. There's a slightly different way of putting it if you, if you want mm. to. Yes. I mean, if, if we see war as an extraordinary experience, something that only in the most nightmarish of conditions would be regarded as a kind of daily reality, uh, and if we regarded the preparation for war that soldiers undergo as similarly extraordinary, in other words, there is something extraordinary about being trained to kill other human beings and being trained to undertake orders given, in other words, to undertake forms of kind of absolute obedience. If these are extraordinary things, then what is the relationship between these extraordinary things and what we might call 
ordinary morality or ordinary life. And it just strikes me, the more I think about it, that things like annual commemorations and institutions like the War Memorial, these are attempts, I think, to bridge the gap between the extraordinary and the ordinary. To say, in other words, that the martial virtues or the virtues that are present for soldiers are on a continuum. They might be an extreme form or even for some a perfected form of certain virtues, but they are connected nonetheless to what we would say, say would be the ordinary virtues that are incumbent upon human beings as a whole. I don't know about you, but the more I think about it, it's really tricky territory, and it's morally fraught territory, um, which I think places a big moral question about the nature of commemoration, what it is that we're doing when we commemorate, and what kind of values we are espousing when we say that servicemen or soldiers are the manifestation of these values that we all ought to aspire to. It's it's tricky terrain. I Yeah, I, I would amend that last sentence to say, I think it's tricky if you say that soldiers are, what did you say, the embodiment or the instantiation of mm, mm, the these virtues? But I think it's easier to say that the soldier is. Okay, interesting. So the idea of a sort of depersonified ah, okay. to the concept of the soldier, because this is a common figure in all kinds of philosophy. yes. Religion? But certainly in religion, mm. even in, in national ideals, right? Yes, that's right. When you say kind of the abstract notion of the soldier, what you really mean there is the ethical soldier. Yes. Well, that, yes, that naturally gathers around it. So this is an idealised form of the soldier. Mm. And you can have an argument about whether that idealised form exists in the real world. But sometimes it actually whether, whether it exists in the real world is less important than the fact that it exists as an ideal mm -hmm. because it gives you something to measure against but mm -hmm. also something that then plugs into a broader story you might be able to tell about virtue. I mean, we're heading straight into the realm of virtue here mm -hmm. and the relationship it has with war. I think it's fascinating that something like Anzac Day, I was going to say has evolved to, I suspect it's always been this way, but it's become a lot bigger in this respect. It's a sacrament. Mm -hmm. I went to one of the Anzac Day football games, for example, the, the ceremony, and they call it a ceremony, that happens before the game is unlike any other pre-match ceremony that you would see at a football game. The last post played on a bugle. It's perfect that it's played on a bugle because a bugle only has certain notes, certain intervals that can hit. And there's something about the forced simplicity of the melody that's played on a bugle that then becomes expressed in the last post. That enforced simplicity means it's not a performance. Mm, that's right. But there's also the underlying um, note of mournfulness, which I've never been able to escape in the last post. Yes, well, mm. and indeed, and the, the things that are said before it, you mm. know, they shall not grow or like, you know, etc. That's a kind of prayer. Mm, that's right. Um, it's offered that way. It's at dawn. The dawn. I've always, I found the dawn service fascinating because, and this is this really interesting particularly for me as a Muslim, but I, I'm sure others would have uh, connections to this. There is something sacred about that time of the day. Mm. There is a certain tranquility, a certain clarity, a certain spiritual richness that only that time of the day and perhaps the time before dawn has. 
No other time quite captures it where other things begin. It's almost like the the non-sacred elements of our lives, the just the mundane or the mundanity of, of the world sort of creeps into being, right, as the day gets longer and the but, hustle and the bustle takes over. Yeah, this is why, in, in, I mean, we've talked about it briefly in the past, but this is why for both Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, dawn is the moral moment of the day. It's the emergence of the moral self having kind of sloughed off the dead accoutrements of the person from the day before. Dawn is, mm. you're, you're right, the moment of moral clarity when one both reinvigorates the spirit but also rededicates oneself to the task of being what one truly should be. So, you know, Emerson famously said that the person who simply sleeps through the dawn has lost all taste for the demands and the rigors of the moral life. Oh, I thought there was something profound. Yeah, and if you've experienced dawn in that way, it's true. Mm. And I, I'm someone that really struggles with dawn, by the way. You know, there, there are type A and type B people, yeah. just people who are natural early risers and people who are just... That's me, up. by the way. Yeah. You and yeah, I are opposites in so many and different I'm the respects. And to the extent that it doesn't matter how tired I am, it hits 9.30 and I'm awake. Yeah. Like I just come into being alive, right? So I, I struggle with the dawn, but even someone like me, and there are many like us, Scott, um, I, I have to concede that it's an inferior position in the day to be. There is something, you know, it follows sleep. We could go into a huge discourse about the the spiritual and moral relevance of sleep. Wow. That's a show. Maybe the, we haven't done that no, show. No, we haven't. Oh my goodness. Um, I'm scribbling as we speak. Yeah. So, okay. I love it when you get scribbling. It's, it's like you're watching Faulty Towers again. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it follows sleep. It has a stillness. Um, we're not overtaken by distraction. And distraction is probably the key thing, isn't it? Like mm. that distraction is really the enemy of so much of the moral life. I think we almost get distracted out of moral conduct in so many ways. It's not that we make deliberate decisions to be amoral, but we, we get distracted, we get blown off course. Dawn has that thing about it. So I'm going on too much about this, but the point I wanted to make is there's so much about the way Anzac Day works that is designed as sacrament and mm. design. And in a society in which there is less and less of this and less and less that's regarded as sacred, I wonder if that's actually one of the things, not, not just crass nationalism. There is something else, I think, that is behind the quite dramatic resurgence of Anzac Day, the popularisation of it, the fact that the attendance at dawn services both here and overseas at certain what you might call sacred sites, the attendance has swelled. I wonder if there's a yearning for the sacred that's just not available in any other aspect of our public lives as a society or as a nation where we can turn towards that sort of common object. And maybe sport is the only other thing that seems to do it. And that- interestingly... I think you've maybe unwittingly, maybe deliberately put your finger on something else there. Sport and the military, sport and Mm. soldierhood have something else in common. They're the two institutions that are left in our society, which is so radically egalitarian and so radically liberal in the sense of uh, privileging the individual, individual self-determination, individual freedom above all other, all other forms of um, either belonging or obligation. Um, sport and the military are the last two remaining institutions that privilege hierarchy and that privilege tradition. 
uh, that you are birthed into something that you did not create, but that you inherit and you inherit the obligations that come along with it. And you have a role and that role is imbued with a certain sanctity. Yeah, yeah. And you're under orders. Your life is not simply your own. I think you're right. It's fascinating. And, you know, this isn't a new observation. Uh, the, The great pragmatic philosopher and psychologist William James back in 1906 Uh, said precisely this, that even though he was bitterly against war and regarded war and the devastation that it can wreak on uh, national civic public life, let me just read it out to you. He said that militarism, by which he means the ascription of value to military character and the cultivation of military life and the military virtues. He says, militarism is the great preserver of our ideals of hardihood. That's his favorite. For him, that's the arch virtue, hardihood. Hardihood. It's wonderful. And hardihood, he says, uh, sorry, and human life with no use for hardihood would be contemptible. Without risks or prizes for the darer, history would be insipid indeed. And so he thought that even though we must try to eradicate war, And even though he thought that forms of moral formation were possible without war, he said as long as those forms of moral formation don't exist, this is his very famous line, war must continue to have its way. In other words, without war and the training for war, the conditions of the moral life and these these virtues which are good for the person and good for society as a whole, uh, hardihood strength, self-sacrifice, all very masculine. I mean, it's, it's inescapably masculine, uh, would atrophy and die. And so he suggests, for instance, that one of the ways in which one might cultivate these same virtues without the devastation of war would be, and again, this shows you just how old and how, how can I put it, infected by what George Kateb calls social Darwinism and Teutonic silliness, um, William James's essay was, he says, instead of war against other nations, uh, we ought to train people up for a war against nature with a capital N, beating back the wildness of the world uh, and mm. cultivating civilization. Um, I mean, it's, it's quite an extraordinary thing to say, but it gives a sense, and, and I think ultimately it's a highly objectionable thing to say, but I think it gives William James's sense that Maybe war is something we need to learn how to live with because of the moral values, the training, the cultivation that it brings along with it. The more I think about it, Waleed, the more I'm profoundly uncomfortable with the idea and with the, this tight association of training for warfare with virtues as if the virtues that are cultivated in and through the cultivation of soldiers uh, exist along an unbroken continuum with the virtues that ought to attend to democratic life. I'm, I'm more and more ill at ease, I think. I'm interested in you teasing that out, but I guess there are a few things there. I think there's, it's one thing to make your peace with war as a phenomenon, if you know what I mean, and another thing to make war something that you would or should seek out. So I think it's entirely possible that there is something you would seek to avoid but that nonetheless plays a really central role in the cultivation of virtues. But what about the glorification of war? 
that works yeah, but no, itself out. I feel out. like you're jumping. You're jumping now. Well, well, well no, not necessarily. I, I don't just mean the glorification of the war, as in a nation is never most fully that nation unless it's trying to kind of seek out conflict. But I mean the various ways in which we try to mitigate or paper over or somehow sanitize or sacramentalize or sublime the horrors of war through the language that we use, whether it be the glorious dead, the fallen soldier, uh, the way that we honor veterans and currently serving soldiers, and at the same time seem to ignore the physical, psychological, but also moral injuries that are necessarily incurred through the very process of being formed into a soldier. Yeah, so this is the other point I wanted to make. I feel that a lot of the discourse surrounding the moral virtues of war or the virtues that emerge from war or or find their sharpest expression in war make the most sense in an era before the professionalisation of war. Yeah, that's right. Beautifully said. So we... We live in an era where to be a soldier is a job, right? And not only is it a job, it's a, it's a job that represents the best opportunity for certain social classes. You see this perhaps most strongly in America, where it's certain kinds of people in, from certain backgrounds, certain socioeconomic upbringings, and even racial backgrounds and so on, that become attracted to the military because it provides an opportunity that civilian life can't provide, whether That's it be right. in the form of education or money or whatever a way out, if Mm. you like. I understand, like, you know, you don't have to convince me of the the utility of a standing army. And then once you have the idea of a standing army, a need to create incentives for people to enter that army if you're not going to use conscription. And so, like, I get the logic of it. I'm not not even seeking to, you know, undo all of this. (laughs) I'm just saying that, that comes with certain costs. Mm. And I suspect those costs go to the heart of what you're talking about. Yeah. They go to the heart of the moral. They go to the heart of the virtues that war might cultivate or express. Um, that's, it's just a very different context for being a soldier than one that is you have your normal life and then there are times where you must take up arms, where you must prepare yourself for that. Because there, there is a huge sacrifice that is being asked of you. That's probably not as true for the professional soldier because that is their job. Mm-hmm. The person who is not a professional soldier, who's a private citizen, this is probably in a time before citizens, actually. Yeah, that's right. Um, but you know what I mean when I say that. Their going to war is the sacrifice of really their entire existence, like their entire way of living. The, the, the whole world that they've cultivated. And so it's a very big call for them to do that sort of thing. And that's why I think, while I, I'm not seeking at all to downplay some of the quite remarkable stories that you do here on Anzac Day about families of diggers and of diggers themselves in a modern context, the most arresting ones, the ones that, if you like, within the canon of Anzac Day stories, you might say the classics, tend to be the older ones, don't they? Mm-hmm. They tend to emerge from World War I. Mm-hmm. 
a bit of World War Two. Now, obviously, those were epic wars, and yeah. so. For but also, reason, in times of conscription, I think that's yes. the yeah, yeah. But so they're the story of you know the kid who had to go the, the most unlikely soldier that you could possibly, find, but who has no choice really but to go and defend their country or you know whatever phrase. I'm, I don't want to get into an argument about you know the motivations of war, etc. At this point, but. They find themselves in this situation and as a result of that, they dig deep within themselves to find certain virtues that can be expressed. And maybe only for pragmatic reasons or whatever. But Mm. there is something I would say qualitatively, perhaps even conceptually different about that, which was obviously much more common in a pre-war, sorry, a pre-modern war setting. Often where the people who declared war had to fight in the war. Mm. That's right. So they're making that sacrifice themselves. There's something qualitatively or conceptually different there from that model to the modern model of soldier as professional, standing armies, not so much conscription, and then even the way that modern warfare is conducted, right? So war often at a distance, um, the use of drones, Mm. um, bombing from aeroplanes, all these sorts of things. Um, I I see your unease, but I don't know that it's – or it has to be – an unease in concept. And maybe, I mean, it's interesting we started with a connection between sport and war, which is, of course, an overwrought connection that sport trades on quite a lot. But it is also there for a reason. But it seems to me these are also, these are both areas to continue <laughs> with the connection. These are both areas where certain virtues definitely can be expressed, but also certain excesses can be expressed. Yes, that's right where it can go so badly wrong, where you have, well, in the case of war, you can have things reaching right up to genocide. Um, You can certainly have war crimes and modern democracies are far from immune to those things, as we've discovered in even in our own country with the Brereton Report and so on. So, and we've seen excesses in sport where sporting fandom or whatever it might be, the culture that gathers around sport, becomes something that's corrosive, can become something that's corruptive, that can um, cause all sorts of pain and damage and horror to people where it becomes more than just a game. And, of course, sport needs it to feel like more than just a game, but it needs to retain its status, as you know, in that great quote from that Italian football manager, that um, sport, or football in this case, is the most important of the unimportant things. Mm-hmm. Um, that it it has to feel incredibly important at the same time as we recognise that that's a fiction and that this, there's a deep unimportance to this. The fact that these are apt to go wrong is, I think, precisely the thing that makes the virtues within them so important and have so much to teach us. I don't know. Can I raise just one small objection before we bring in our guest? Because sure. it's actually from our guest that I've... I mean, he's been one of the primary spurs for my own thinking about this. But if we just take one quick step back to the idea of a professional standing army, Mm. a standing army which is cultivated, I mean, part of their formation as soldiers is an overcoming of the fundamental human moral refusal to kill another human being. In other words, I mean, what is central to the act of being formed into a soldier is to be willing to kill and to be willing to kill with a degree of resilience 
such that one is not left morally devastated as a result of having killed. Mm -hmm. And what often goes along with that then is the inculcation of a certain asymmetry between the person doing the killing and the person being killed. In other words, the person being killed is not simply a target, not simply an object. Uh, it may be an object, but it's also someone who is therefore because of the righteousness of my cause or whatever, lesser than me. In other words, there is an inevitable, I mean, you know, I can't go into detail here, but someone extremely close to me, um, the formation that he had to go through, <laughs> through multiple deployments to bring him to the position where he was able to kill and kill in the most brutal circumstances. Uh, and then for him to be left with the wreckage of his own emotional life um, upon reentry to society. You know, this is all part of Which is not an uncommon theme. No, yeah. it's not. No, it's not. That's right. It's not an uncommon thing. So this is part and parcel of the formation of being a soldier, which means that there is a kind of moral degradation. There is a damage that is inflicted to the capacity, to the wholeness, the integrity of the moral life that is at the heart of the training to be a soldier, especially in a professional standing army. I think that there's something kind of different. There's an underlying note. So of you're arguing, your argument is there cannot be any such thing as virtuous killing? <sighs> I think there is ethically justified killing. I think there is ethically justified killing. I'm not sure that killing ever gets to the point of being a virtue. But that's why the virtues that are then named, for instance, at the Australian War Memorial, resourcefulness, candor, devotion, comradeship, patriotism, chivalry, loyalty, audacity, endurance, decisiveness. These are the virtues, if you like, that are erected as guard posts around the central immorality of the act of killing meant to try its very, very, very best, it's up to other people to decide whether that attempt is futile, to try to place enough guardrails around the act that some sense of the self, that some residual moral value in the person is left after the, after the training or through the act of killing itself. So my question is, are the virtues that we erect around the act of soldierly formation are these peculiar virtues, specific virtues that in a way acknowledge the horror of war itself? Or are these virtues which are then practiced, erected, and then held up by your figure of the quote-unquote soldier, the ethical soldier, as a kind of moral exemplar for the rest of us to follow? My suspicion is it's the former. Uh, the very identification of these virtues is a kind of moral response to the horror of training people to kill, um, which means that mm. if we don't regard those virtues as enough, as sufficient, then there are other forms of amelioration. There are other forms of repair and care uh, and caregiving that we need to give to those who have killed in our name and on I'm our sure behalf. I, I'm not sure I can go with you. Yeah, yet. I didn't think you could. Because the virtues that you identify exist outside of war as well. And... I think what they reflect is not an attempt to redeem war, especially where war is no, necessary. No, I, I didn't say redeem. Well, what do you mean? I mean, it's the desperate placing of guardrails about, around something that is very, very, very easily to tip over into either monstrousness or to irreparable moral damage but that, to the but self. But that's true of so many aspects of civilian life. 
I mean, there are so many elements of our lives that without guardrails can cause all kinds of damage. Think of food. Think of sex. Think, I mean, we've just done five weeks basically on this. Yeah, I don't think any of them rise to the level of the horror of the act of killing another human being. That might be true. I'm I'm not going to concede that point yet, by the way, because I'd have to actually think about it. Mm. But but even if we, for argument's sake, concede it, that doesn't change the concept. None of which is to say, by the way, there aren't such things as justifiable wars. And it's also not to say that there isn't a kind of moral duty to engage in war as an act of defense, as an act of defending others. In other words, I'm not mounting a pacifist case, but it may well be that what we do in war is inescapably tragic, um, which means that the way that we regard our veterans shouldn't be as moral exemplars, but as those who have suffered or incurred a form of moral damage on our behalf. Yeah, I'm just not sure I would... I think that's true a lot of the time. I'm not sure I would be prepared to say that's true ab initio. Okay. Or by definition. Yeah, that's fair enough. Anyway, we've got a guest who can sort us out, I think. Let's get to him. Our guest is Ned Dobos. He's Senior Lecturer in International and Political Studies at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. He's the author of an extraordinary book called Ethics, Security and the War Machine, The True Cost of the Military. Ned, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thanks for having me. Okay, you've heard us talk around in circles. I'm not even going to put a question to you. Where do you want to take us? Well, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll start by picking up where we just left off about this idea of whether the military virtues are simply continuous with mm. ordinary general virtues or whether they're a, a separate category of virtues unto themselves. Um, and I, I don't think we should conceive of this as an either-or question. Mm. The, the answer doesn't need to be either, yes, military virtues are simply an expression of ordinary virtues or they're kind of sui generis and have a life of their own. I think it really depends on which of the military virtues you're talking about. So I, I sometimes like to draw a distinction between the advertised military virtues and the suppressed military virtues. So the advertised ones are the ones that you rattled off there, Scott. They're the ones that you see at the War Memorial and in all of the kind of recruitment literature, dedication, loyalty, honour, courage, so on and so forth. Now, those things, I think Wally rightly pointed out, you find those virtues in civilian life as well as military life, and they're regarded to be virtues in civilian life as well as military life. Now, maybe in cases like that, where we're talking about those virtues, uh, the martial versions of them are simply the sharpest expression of the more general virtues we're talking about. So, you know, yeah, we think it's courage, for example. Courage makes for a competent and effective soldier, but it also makes for a better human being, generally speaking. But then there are other military virtues where I just don't think that that's the case. So, this is where I'm talking about these suppressed military virtues. And maybe they're not so suppressed, but they're not as, uh, they're usually not put up in bright lights. So uh, kind of emotional coldness or toughness, uh, domination, forcefulness, hierarchy, uh, even let's say obedience. Mm. Okay. So in the military, what's considered virtuous is obedience. Uh, And it's not any kind of obedience. It's obedience unto death. It's the willingness to pay the ultimate price, to give up your life when your commanding officer orders you to. But now let's think about, if we take that to be a martial virtue, this this sacrificial obedience, do we really want to say that that's also a, a 
ordinary virtue, a general virtue that makes you a better person in ordinary civilian life? I mean, do we really think that somebody that's a worker that goes onto the construction site and is willing to sacrifice his life because his foreman told him to climb a rusty, rickety scaffold in strong winds, do we think that that's, that person is therefore more virtuous? Seems to me like this person has been taught to show an improper lack of self-regard to treat himself as disposable. Uh, that's not a virtue, that's a vice. So I, I think I say, sometimes... Can I say, Ned, though, I, I see the point you're making. I think it's a good point. But I think there's an apples and oranges thing here. Because the reason that obedience makes sense as a virtue, albeit a suppressed or undisclosed one in the military, is that there is already a working out of what you might call the supra-virtues that make that virtue possible and necessary. So in other words, we understand before we get into the situation that obedience is necessary in order to realise the greater virtue that exists in military campaigns, etc. In other words, a lack of obedience in that context is not individual self-actualization; It's corrosive. It undermines the whole thing. Whereas if you're talking about the builder on a worksite or whatever, you would have first to construct an overarching account of the virtue of that building and the building site and the construction industry or whatever. That means that it is worthy of or that obedience is the apt disposition to take into that situation. And I just don't think anyone has constructed that or would construct that that isn't, I don't know, running their own construction company or something like that, right? So in other words, like I see what you're saying. I think it's important to highlight those things, but you have to place them, I think, for a final analysis. You have to place them in a fuller context, don't you? That's exactly right. So I'm not disagreeing with you. The context, the circumstances, the institutional purposes of the organisations we're talking about, construction companies versus militaries, they're different. And I'm saying precisely because they're so different, some things uh, which are virtues in one context. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, right. Okay. Um, I might just follow up. Uh, so I think that this is the standard line that, you know, unless there was this sacrificial obedience in the military, uh, the whole institution would just become paralysed and it would no longer be able to perform its function. Whereas we don't think that's the case for, say, a construction company. They can still build buildings without people falling to their death. And, and I think that's certainly plausible. But at the same time, I, I don't think we should just accept that without any further critical scrutiny because uh, you just said there, Waleed, that nobody apart from a CEO of a construction company would say... Uh, that employees need to follow orders unto death in order for the company to make its profits and do its business. In fact, if you look, I, I read a, a history of labor unions not that long ago, and once upon a time, miners would get would get lowered into to mines, and they'd come out. Well, they'd be pulled out dead. Mm. So they started agit because there was no ventilation, no oxygen down there. So they started agitating uh, for greater health and safety oversight. Uh, and the employers pushed back and said, I, I remember a quote from the book, one of the employers said that if the workers get their way, that will spell the end of mining in America. So essentially, here you've got these institutions, mining companies saying, workers need to be prepared to sacrifice themselves if we're to dig stuff up out of the ground. Now, of course, 
the workers were successful in, in this case and these occupational health and safety reforms were instituted and that didn't spell the end of mining in America, which as they said it would. So I, I just think we need to take with a pinch of salt this kind of apparently self-evident truth that the only way for the military to work is for the underlings to obey without question and unto death mm. the orders of their commanding officers. It may be true, but I, I just, I'm inclined to insist on more than just the assertion that it's true. I'd like to see some yeah, some evidence or a more compelling argument. Yeah, I think that's fair. But I, I would also observe that the assertion that obedience is necessary is always circumscribed to some degree, right? We also recognise and frequently discuss examples where conscientious objection, even within the military, has been a virtuous thing, right? And in fact, we a display of courage, yes, crucially. right, which is itself one of the virtues. That's right. That we might call a martial or, or military virtue. So sure. I, I don't know that we assert these things as absolute in... I mean, maybe we get pretty close, so I'm, I'm not mm. going to take the argument too far, but but I do think we we need to recognise there are limits to it. Yeah, agreed. So it seems to me, Ned, that you're trying to say that it's not so much that there are military virtues that exist at one end of the spectrum as a kind of heightened or even as Aristotle would have it you know, on the matter of courage in particular, a perfected version of a particular virtue like courage. Uh, to which the rest of us looking up at the moral exemplars of the soldier, the courageous, uh, the sacrificial, uh, the one prepared to obey even at the risk of uh, his or her life, then sort of aspire uh, as manifestations of a kind of underlying national character. Are you instead saying that it's not so much that that the military virtues exist at one end of the spectrum, but rather they need to be brought in somewhat so that they're more reconciled to, maybe closer to, the ordinary virtues that attend to democratic life, undergird as they are by things like equality, reciprocity, no unquestioned sense of hierarchy, but rather some attempt to hold on to the integrity of the self in the face of the tasks that the self has to perform. Uh, so th this is a, a really good question, and there's, there's it's a bone of contention among among military ethicists and political philosophers. Actually, this idea that uh, well, so the question is, currently the military organisations are animated by quite different virtues and value systems compared to those that we find in ordinary civilian life. Now, what what some will say is that yes, the military is different in that respect has different values, different virtues, different ideals. It is different and it needs to be different. So if you have a military which is organised around liberal democratic values and principles, some say, that military is incompetent. It can't perform the tasks that you entrust to it. It can't effectively fight wars. So it has to be hierarchical. Um, it, it has to have these other values which we tend to think are, are sometimes problematic. Like you said, Scott, the virtues that William James was talking about, hardihood and toughness and... He even, he, very... he even names at one point contempt for softness. Right. Yeah. Now, you, you're right. You said they're kind of unescapably masculine, unmistakably masculine. They're, I think today they're what we'd refer to as toxic masculinity. Mm, that's right. 
So one view is only, the, mil- the military has to be organised around those has to be organised around those values in order for it to work. But then the other way to go is to say, which is sort of in line with the discussion we were just having, the other way to go is to say, well, that's it's not actually true that the military has to be that way in order for it to perform its function. Uh, it's just always been that way, and these have become time-honoured traditions, and then institutional inertia takes grip, and so that, that makes the institution resistant to change. But on the other hand, you might say, look, perhaps the military, to be maximally effective does have to have these alternative virtues, hardihood, contempt for softness, hierarchy, so on. But one might argue that what that does to the people in the institution is still so regrettable that we would do better to have a less effective defence force if it means that we don't have to re-socialise and reconstruct the moral value systems of these people in this way that we take to be objectionable. Mm. So there's sort of a spread of positions here. One is that it's necessary Mm. for the military to be effective, for the military to have these alternate values. The other position is, no, it's not necessary. And the third position is, fine, maybe it is necessary for the military to be effective, but that still doesn't mean that we should do it Mm. because there are costs. Yes, there are benefits. We make the military more effective, but there are costs. We re-socialise people in a way that... Uh, makes it more difficult for them to live an ordinary civilian life upon their return. We re-socialise people in a way that makes uh, their character, let's say, problematic or or morally defective. And maybe the costs there outweigh the pros. So even if there are benefits, that's not conclusive, all things considered. Mm -hmm. I suppose it depends on what you think the costs of a less effective military are. (laughs) Exactly. um, That's that's quite a cost-benefit analysis. What you raised there, Ned actually is, I think, a whole other dimension of the figure of the soldier that I I think in pre-modern traditions of what are we calling it, the ethics of war, are really present. And that is to do with the character of, of the soldier. So, I mean, I'm sure you'll be familiar with all manner of different traditions, but as I know the Islamic tradition best, I think of the story of Ali ibn Abu Talib, who was fighting on the battlefield and had was about to deliver the killing blow to an enemy who then spat in his face. And at that point he withdraws his sword because he knows that if he were to proceed, he would be acting out of anger and in response to a kind of personal slight. And that would therefore demean or morally compromise the act of war that he's engaged in. Now that is an incredible level of control and so on that is far beyond the reach of most people and you could probably never construct an army of people who, you know, if that were a precondition. But the point is that the the ethic there is necessary. One of the military virtues that we haven't mentioned, perhaps because it doesn't get chiselled into our monuments, but I think is nonetheless there in what I might call the more developed theories of war, is that of restraint. Mm. It's what we would also call proportionality. We would see restraint as being as being connected in some respect to proportionality. But do you know what? The, the example I just gave the there, mm. that's not proportionality. No, it's not. There wouldn't no, have been not. anything disproportionate in the context of a, a war with delivering a killing blow to your enemy. Of course there wouldn't. That, that's what war is. It wasn't disproportionate. It was such a strong sense of telos, such a strong sense of what made violence in a particular context legitimate 
and what compromised its legitimacy. Mm. The extent to which, to which it's not motivated by, say, wrath. Yes. Yeah. If it were possible for lots of humans to engage in war that way, war would look very different. And for that reason, I think we need to treat it as something mm. that you know, is bound to go wrong. And I, I think when we make decisions about whether or not to go to war, we should probably presume the worst about that war because mm. it turns out that that's true more often than not. But anyway, all that's to the side. My point is there is a tradi- or there are traditions that we could draw upon here that meld the martial virtues that we've described as masculine actually with much broader elements of character that we wouldn't necessarily code as masculine at all. Yeah. certainly not in the same way, but are nonetheless fundamental to the realisation of this ideal figure of the soldier. Absolutely. I, mean, I just want to pick up on, on something you said there, Waleed, um, about what we ought to presume when we wage a war. What kind of behaviour should we presume on the part of our, on the part of our armed forces personnel? And, and you said something like we ought to presume the worst. We ought to presume that people aren't going to show restraint when, when sometimes they should. And I think that's absolutely right when we're thinking about whether to to commit ourselves to armed conflict we ought to imagine what's going to happen when we deploy the soldiers that we currently have into this particular environment rather than thinking about what would happen if we were to deploy a whole bunch of these idealized soldiers into that yeah. environment and I, I think unfortunately the latter is what we often do we kind of take the the Anzac image, the kind of highly idealised noble soldier, and we multiply that figure and then we think, would it be justified to send this military outfit into this foreign country to defend us, to democratise, whatever? And now from that vantage point, starting with those highly idealised assumptions, we might be inclined to think, yeah, this would be justified. But we wouldn't think that way if we took... Not our soldiers, not as they might be, but as they actually are, human beings that sometimes fail to show restraint, that give in to temptation and and wrath and and sometimes lose control of themselves and the fog of war and all the rest of it. If we start with those much more realistic assumptions, then I think we would be much less inclined to commit people to fight wars in the first place. Okay, let me just push that one step further with you, though, Ned. Um. How do we want those that we've trained to kill, how do we want them to respond to the act of killing? Um, When you say how do we want them to respond, uh, I hate to do this, but it depends on who you mean by we. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, if if you're talking about the the military establishment, how does does it want them to respond? Well... uh, Presumably, I mean, it wants them to respond in the way that you described uh, in the introduction to the show. It wants them to be able to kill people upon having received the orders to do so uh, without psychological disintegration, without too much hesitation and without psychological moral collapse afterwards. So that's what the military institution wants. That's the reaction it wants, a kind of a cold conditioned response. And I think we can safely say that's what the military institution wants because that's what its training and conditioning is geared towards, the drill training, the dehumanisation, even the, some of the kind of cold mechanical language. You know, you don't kill people, you service targets. Um, so that, mm. that's what the military wants now. But there's also the question of what do we as, yeah, a, as right. a society want? 
And this is really tough because on the one hand, we might say, well, actually what we want of these people is for them to feel something, to really appreciate the, the horror that they're inflicting, to really see that this is tragic, to acknowledge the value of the human life that they're extinguishing. So to really feel it, we want them to experience some anguish. We don't want them to treat killing like it's some morally innocuous act, like kicking a can down the road. We want them to suffer. But now, I mean, yeah. I, I, there, there's something to be said in favour of that. Yeah, we don't yeah, want but, them to be completely, yeah. but, so what are we saying? We want, we want to recruit these people and we want to send them overseas to fight our wars and then we want them to suffer sometimes terribly for the rest of their lives in virtue of doing that, whether they, you know, uh, abide by the rules of engagement or not. I mean, it seems like the best we can do here is say something like, well, there's a respect in which we want them to react with cold indifference, but there's also a respect in which we want them to react with emotional torment and anguish. Either way, they're a kind of there's a good and a bad, and you've got to take the good with the bad. So it's it's all a question of what's preferable, all things considered. Mm. Um, is, is there and, a middle and, path, and, though, that isn't about anguish and cold indifference? Is there something that's more about gravity? So like a, a respect for the gravity of what of the situation, of what one that, did, of what one had that, to do, but yeah. nonetheless a respect for the... So I don't know, I don't mean to imbue it all with the, another sense of the, the sacred or something like that, but... I feel like we're talking in quite polarised terms here about what yeah. the responses might be. Yeah, look, maybe th that's a good point. I mean, maybe what we want is maybe we can have our cake and eat it too, as it were, where we can have these people respond in a way that, it, that avoids complete psychological disintegration, post-traumatic stress disorder, moral injury, what have you, but at the same time they don't succumb to the lifetime of, of moral anguish and self-hatred and self-loathing and guilt and shame that, that some of them do. Maybe this middle ground could be something like, well, they appreciate, you know, it's not like what uh, Prince Harry said, where Prince Harry said, when I killed people in Afghanistan, it was like removing chess pieces off the board. Th mm. That seems to fail to appreciate the gravity and the moral significance of what you're doing. So that's kind of more the cold indifference. But maybe you might think the middle ground option would be to have our soldiers respond with an appreciation of what I did was morally serious and in need of justification and mm. uh, it, it's not something to be treated lightly. But I guess, I, I mean, the question is, if we had soldiers that reacted that way, but it was a purely intellectualized appreciation, mm. you know, they kind of, they could recite for you an argument yeah, uh, a yeah. philosophically compelling argument that, yes, human life is valuable and here's why uh, you should not take human life except under ex exceptional circumstances. So if, if they had this intellectualized appreciation of the gravity of what they were doing, but they had no feelings, they had no affect, they didn't feel bad about it, I think we'd still regard that to be in some respects regrettable. Yeah, we'd think right. something something bad has happened to these people where they can cause other people to suffer and they can take the lives of other people without suffering themselves. There's just, mm. we can't avoid the fact that we think it's appropriate for you to suffer when you cause other people to suffer, even if it's justified, even if it's a just war, 
of national self-defence. Mm. And I think the Prince Harry response you talk about is a far easier response in an era of war at a distance, which, which is our era. I suspect you, well, I don't know for sure, but I suspect you get quite different responses if you're looking the enemy in the eye. That's, so this is what people have presumed. Sure, I mean, if you've got hand-to-hand combat and so you see your enemy, you see the fear in his eyes up close before you take his life, that's one thing. And the presumption has always been that, well, when it comes to this uh, remote warfare, particularly with unmanned drones and whatnot, uh, that's just the opposite. I mean, all you're seeing is blips on a computer screen, so you're not mm. going to feel anything when you, those blips vanish, right? Pieces on a chessboard, um, yeah. Yeah, but it turns out it's actually not, it doesn't play out that way. Mm, that's right, uh, right. With drone operators, it's sometimes a lot worse because, you know, these people will hover overhead and they're sitting in a remote facility somewhere in the United States uh, and say they're flying a drone over somewhere in Pakistan, but they'll, they'll monitor a guy for hours, days on end before mm. they strike. So they get to live his life with him, as it were. You know, he walks to the bakery, they follow him. He plays with his children, they follow him. They, yeah. they really get a sense that this is a person who happens to be fighting. It's not just a fighter. It makes it very difficult to just reduce this person to the enemy. And so when, mm. and, and I've even heard cases where after that, I don't know why they would do this, but after they kill the person, they then monitor the funeral with the drone. Mm. So... So now yeah, we have all his, sorts yeah. of evidence, all sorts of evidence saying that, in fact, with the drone operators, it's worse because it's not actually remote. It's remote in one sense, but it's intimate mm. in another sense. Yeah, so there's a surveillance that comes along with it. Exactly. Yeah. So they're, yeah, they're yeah. physically remote, but in this other way, they actually, they're much closer to the enemy than soldiers have yeah. been for a long time. It's almost a, yeah. a return to the hand-to-hand combat in one way. That's a really important nuance that you've added there, Ned. Um, As you have throughout the whole show, we are, alas, out of time, but thank you so much for dropping by. This has been a really rich discussion, so really, really appreciate your expertise. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ned Dovos, Senior Lecturer in International and Political Studies at UNSW Canberra. He's the author of Ethics, Security and the War Machine, The True Cost of the Military. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now over. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.